Well, turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. And as you are turning, I need to bring your attention to a couple of announcements. Uh, the first one, and this is the, I want us to pray here at this point. Um, if you have not heard, uh, Kathy Berenkamp's mother passed away this week. Um, and they, actually, the funeral is at one o'clock today in Allert, Tennessee. So um, I promised them that we would pray for them this morning. Uh, the family is gathering this morning um, around that. We know we've been praying with Kathy for years as she's been caring for her mother. Um, I'm not certain her age, 94, 95-ish. Um, so, and, you know, and Kathy, she has that testimony of the Christian that her mother loved the Lord and her mother taught them about Christ and even as I was uh, talking with Kathy this morning, she was celebrating the fact that they are going to celebrate the life of a mother who loved Jesus Christ. Amen. And so as the family is gathering in, uh, in Allert, Tennessee, up near Jamestown uh, at this moment, can we pray for them right now? Because we, 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 are, we are confident that as we pray, the Spirit of God connects us with them at this moment. So let, let's pray. Father God, uh, we as a church body lift up Kathy Camp and Bill Camp today, they are gathering with family uh, for a time of grief, but also a time of celebration. Um, as Kathy's mother has passed, we pray, Lord, that you would receive this dear saint of a lady home. And Lord, I pray that the, the, the funeral ceremony this afternoon, the time of remembering her life would be a time of remembering your glory in her. Let this day be a day that brings you glory, Father. As, as a family does grieve, I pray, Lord, that you would bring them happy memories together. Let this time be a time of, of healing for them. Let this time be a time of just a precious worship of your son, Jesus Christ, through the life of a dear saint. We lift this family to you today, Lord, and we ask that you hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to continue in this gospel. Last week, remember, we, we, we did take a bit of a break. I, I just felt last week it was in, important to look at the nature of uh, just war theory biblically based on the events of our world. And as we continue to watch what is unfolding around the world, um, there are a lot of uncertainties and we have family in this church. We have members of this church who have military family members. Uh, we have fiancés. We have sons. We, uh, this is a time of concern for many families. But this, today's passage, I think, is actually very relevant even to the idea last week of where we looked through Scripture about how God calls Christians to fight wars justly. If we are, must, if we must fight war, we must do it God, in a godly way, in a just way. Not that war is ever good, yet there is a way that Christians look at this. When we look at the, the, the evil in our world at this moment, we are, we are reminded that evil exists. And that's what's playing out, um, in Ukraine and in Russia, in Europe right now. We are witnessing a, a level of evil in the world that we have not seen in many generations. 
Even though there have been wars, there have been skirmishes, there have been a lot of things going uh, happening. I mean, war is constant in our fallen world. Yet this time, this is something that is building in something that this generation has never seen. Yet previous generations had to deal with. And I think today's passage in Matthew 14 is going to show us what what evil does and really what evil is and how the gospel still stands despite it. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we stand before your throne as we hear your word read. And we hear uh, an account of the horrible death of your greatest of prophets, John the Baptist, at the hand of evil. And so, God, as we even as we read these words, if we meditate on the reality of what happened to John, we, we are revolted. I mean, we, we, we are just... It's, it's just disgusting to read the words because evil is so vile. Yet what I, I, I'm so thankful for you, Lord, is that you show us here that your gospel continues. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear directly from you. That you would cause us to find faith and comfort in the fact that no matter how desperate situations become, No matter how vile the evil is that we are standing against, it is your truth and your gospel through your son, Jesus Christ, that triumphs over it all. And so open our minds, Lord, today. Love us today. Be with us today. This is your house. And God, we are your people. Let us worship you by hearing your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. There's a classic Christian work by John Fox and some of many of the homeschool families here. You may have read it to your children, or if you have not, let me challenge you at the appropriate age, allow your children to study this wonderful classic. It's Fox's Book of Martyrs. And the opening page uh, to this work opens with these words. On page one, here's what this book of, of, of just the history of martyrdom tells us. In Matthew 16, 18, it is recorded that Jesus told his disciples, and he's actually speaking to Peter directly, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's how this book begins. 
Three major points can be noted in Jesus' words here, Matthew 16, 18. One, Christ will have a church in this world. That's number one. Number two, his church will be mightily attacked. It will. And number three, none of the devil's attacks will destroy the church. That is how the Fox's Book of Martyrs opens. And it's, in, it's important for us to begin thinking this way through Matthew 14 because as, as Matthew takes us through the ministry of Jesus, now he's going to, he's already shown us some, uh, obstacles to Jesus' ministry, but now going forward, this is now leading up to his, his, his trial, his crucifixion and his death. And, and more and more, Matthew will show us how his ministry was challenged how the truth of the kingdom of heaven came against assault, even as the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, was here. Although Fox's Book of Martyrs lists, actually lists Jesus as the first to die for the church, right? Fox's Book of Martyrs, when you look at the list of the martyrs, the very first martyr listed is Jesus himself who died for his church. But I want to propose, based on what we're reading today, that we could consider John the Baptist as the first to die for Christ. Not necessarily for the church, because it had not been established yet, but I, I would say there's a, there's a bit of a segue here between the, the age of the prophets and, and the age of the apostles. And here John the Baptist is bridging both. He, he died as a prophet for Christ. Yet he was the greatest of prophets to die for preaching the truth. If you recall, it was in Matthew chapter 11 where we read of John's imprisonment. That's where we first see this in the gospel of Matthew back in chapter 11. We know that John is in prison and that he sends word to his cousin, Jesus Christ. Are you really the one that I've been preaching about or have I, have I just been wasting my time? Remember that, that hint of reality in, in a sinful human? John even had a hint of doubt there, but Jesus assured him of who, who he was. So now in chapter 14, Matthew gives us a glimpse into the details of this imprisonment. Not only do we see that John, why he was in prison, we also see the details of his death at the hand of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod the Tetrarch here in verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Who is this? This is not the original Herod the Great who persecuted uh, Jesus and his family at his birth. Remember back at the beginning of Matthew where they had to flee and leave at the hands of Herod the Great as he ordered the, the murder, the slaughter of every male child below the age of two. This Herod, the Tetrarch in chapter 14, is Herod the Great's son, one of three. And here's how this is all set up. Herod the Great was, he was a puppet king of Rome, but he was the king over, a, over the large territory here of Judea. And after Herod the King, or Herod the Great died, he had three sons. And Rome established them as governors over provinces. They split up the kingdom and just said, here you go. You're going to get a sliver of the kingdom that your father had, but you even have less power. Honestly, Rome did not give the title king to Herod the Tetrarch and the others. Herod the Tetrarch, his name is Herod Antipas. And the term Tetrarch implies the territory that he covered. It's just a sliver of a greater piece of a pie. Okay, 
So this is what's happening here. Herod, this Herod is one of the three sons of Herod the Great. And the scene here in Matthew 14, this is going to show us that the gospel will always face persecution from evil men. It's guaranteed. And here is what we see in chapter 14. What I feel, that this, I, th- I think this text is going to show us that there is a guilt upon the evil ones who come against the gospel because the gospel is true. And that guilt will come whether the evil will acknowledge that guilt or not. And we see some of that here. So let's take a look here at John's martyrdom. Some of the points to consider in this passage. We got, really, we're looking at evil here. We've got to consider what is evil and what is evil doing. We see a lot in this text. Number one, evil wrongly attributes the power of Jesus to the wrong place. That's what we see here in verses 1 and 2. We're going to break that down here in a minute. Because Herod the Tetrarch, when he heard about Jesus, he thought, oh, John the Baptist has come back to get me. So we're going to unpack that just a little bit. Evil also will wrongly try to stop the power of Jesus at all cost. Because it threatens their power. It threatens the, the stability or the instability of, of evil power. It's that when the truth of the gospel is revealed and shows itself, evil is threatened. And it will always come against Christ. So we're going to see that here. Evil also seeks ways to cover up its sin. All the time. And we're going to see that here as well. So God's truth and his power. Let's remember here that, that, that God's truth and his power survives even the martyrdom that is showing the genuine strength of our Lord. See, as John the Baptist dies here at the hands of evil, God is glorified. Jesus Christ and his ministry expands even more at the hands of this evil Herod. And it's hard for us to fathom that, but that's a biblical reality. It's also a reality of the history of the church. Because when bravery and humility stands up against evil, when that bravery and humility is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the kingdom of God itself, then evil cannot stand. That's what we're going to see here as well. So look at verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So here, Herod, just he, he's hearing of the great ministry of Jesus. He had never met Jesus. But he'd heard the great stories. And the first thing that comes to his mind about this Jesus is, oh, that's John the Baptist. I killed him. He's come back. Now that right there, I think these first two verses help set the tone for the mindset of this man. A little insecure, a <laughs> little fearful. Um, in these verses, we see how Herod, this Herod, he mistook the power of Jesus as revenge from the deceased John the Baptist. John has been reincarnated in this man, Jesus. See, we see some mysticism here. It's back in Matthew chapter 3 that we see the impact that John had in his wild preaching ministry. Remember back in Matthew chapter 3? If you want to go back to the sermon recordings on our website, you can find all those. And we we looked at John's ministry. He was a wild preacher. I'm not a wild preacher. 
I'm dressed more formally. I'm a little more articulate, I guess, in my words, I've been told. John was very articulate and very bold, but man, he was a wild man. He, he actually lived, he, he was actually called uh, the, the resurrected Elijah. They, they said he's Elijah come back. So because Elijah was the same way, the old prophet Elijah was just as wild and crazy and truthful and bold. And John the Baptist was just like him. So we see that John had a great reputation for speaking truth to power. We see that even back in Matthew 3. I mean, he insults the authorities with the truth of their sin. And he does not hesitate to do so. Now, I'm not here telling you that we as Christians must follow John's example. Because you see what John, what happened to John. John was called by God uniquely to do what he did. He was, he was John the Baptist. Not everyone in this room is John the Baptist. Not everyone in this room is going to wear camel hair and eat locusts and wild honey. Because if you want to act like John the Baptist and be bold in your faith like that, you got to go all the way. If you're not willing to go eat locusts in the wilderness and wild honey and wear camel's hair, don't act like John the Baptist. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, be bold like him, but don't think that you are him, okay? Because he's different. He's at a different level. He is, he is God's prophet called to do this, right? But these verses show us that, that Herod here is reminiscing upon John's warning because John was very bold in telling the truth to power. And here in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 14, Herod is he's reminiscing about John's warning to him as he considers this rising power in the ministry of Jesus. Because when you're in power like this, you're paranoid. You're always afraid someone is coming to take your power from you. You're always on guard against your enemies, seen or unseen, real or unreal. You're always cautious. You're walking on eggshells. And that's what we see here. You see, evil will always be wrong on where the origin of God's power is coming from. And evil will always be wrong at where God's power is at play. What we see here in verses 1 and 2. Herod, hearing of Jesus, just hearing the stories of Jesus, was wrong in attributing the power of John the Baptist in Jesus. You see where he's wrong here? His mind is so distorted and twisted with with, uh, paranoia, that's the only place he can go. God will be God despite what evil says of him. The gospel of Jesus Christ will be the gospel of Jesus Christ despite what evil says of it. And here Herod is showing his fear that John the Baptist has come back from the dead to continue in the body and the ministry of Jesus. And so he's he's waking up, he's thinking wrongly here, but he's thinking, I thought I stopped John, but now he's coming again. What do I have to do to stop this? And it's going to lead to even worse evil. I think that we can also infer here from these first two verses that pagan mysticism is at play in Herod's mind. You can also see here in these first couple of verses that Herod clearly was not an obedient Jew. Here, pagan mysticism, you know, evil spirits coming back to possess people. That's what's in, it's, it's in his mind. Evil spirits coming back from their dark punishment to haunt the earth again and again. It's, it, that's the only, that's how Herod is thinking. The, the, the mystical dark arts of pagan worship, I think, are clearly influenced here in his fears. You see that? 
This passage tells us more about the insecurities of an evil mind than anything else. Does that sound relevant today? The insecurities of the evil mind in relation to the glorious truth of the gospel, it shows us that the evil mind will always seek to hide its sin in the face of the illuminating truth. And that's what John did. And as Herod now is hearing of the stories of Jesus, the truth is coming back as well. This time, just through the stories of, he's not even met Jesus yet at this point. Just the stories of Jesus is illuminating the truth of sin in this twisted mind. You see that? Now, verses three and four. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Verse 5, and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. What's happening here? Now we're getting into the details of why Herod is insecure, why he's fearful. Now we're getting the truth of the sin. These verses, verses 3 through 4, tell us the depth of the sin in Herod's actions. His, his, his insecurities, I mean, they reveal a man here who took his brother's wife after killing his own wife. That's what's occurring here. And, and he, he took his brother's wife while his brother was still alive. Now, it takes two to tango. Sounds like Herodias probably went willingly. But you see the, you see the dysfunctional family dynamic that's going on here and the sin that's going on. The, these brothers, these sons of Herod the Great, this Herod Antipas and, and then Philip, uh, these, they were two of the three sons of Herod the Great. And they were just little puppets of Rome. And, and like I shared before, their titles, even though this passage calls him the king, and in later passages, as Jesus is in front of him at his trial and, and crucifixion, he is called a king. In reality, Rome did not acknowledge this royal title. In reality, at best, they were just, uh, they were just placeholders in the territories to keep things in order. That's all they were. But in their minds, I'm the son of the great King Herod, so I must be a king too. But can you imagine all the different brothers competing for the title and the authority of king? Can you imagine the tension in the family? (laughs) And now here we have Herod Antipas taking his brother's wife. That goes even deeper. And this is a distorted, messy family. Evil all the way through. You see what's happening here? So so what we see here, the, the, the depth of the sin, the depth of the insecurities in his mind. Now we see in verses three through five, there's an effort to cover up the sin. This sound familiar to all of us? Verse four, John the Baptist calls out this sinful arrangement. He echoes the style of Elijah. He's, he's speaking like Elijah would, who was also known for calling out evil authorities. If you go back, if you're taking notes, second Kings chapter one is when Elijah the prophet comes on the scene. And the very first thing we see about, uh, Elijah the prophet is he's coming to tell the king how sinful he is. And oh, by the way, king, you're about to die because of your sin. Okay. Same thing here. The Mosaic law defines how brothers are to care for the wife of a brother who dies. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 25. There were, I mean, the Mosaic law does allow for and actually commands a brother to marry the wife of a fallen brother to continue the family line. 
Yet, what's going on here? <laughs> the brother's not dead. <laughs> brother's very much alive. We've got some adultery and idolatry going on here, don't we? Uh, and so that right there is totally against the Mosaic law. Leviticus chapter 20 actually spells out the punishment for sexual immorality, if you're taking notes. We're not going to read any of that today because we have a mixed audience here. But if you, I mean, if you're taking notes, go back and read Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus chapter 20. You get the background here of what John is calling out. You're not supposed to do this, Herod. <laughs> you're going against God here. Now in verse 5 we see, And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Now we see another level of insecurity here. Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch here, his insecurities shows that he was not a strong leader. Verse 5 shows he was not a very decisive leader. He was a leader by popular opinion. You know, if he was, if he was his father, King uh, Herod the Great would have not hesitated to get rid of John the Baptist to squelch any kind of threat to his power. Wouldn't have even thought twice about it. But here his son, oh, I really want to kill this man. He's, he's my enemy and he's coming against my uh, reputation and, and, and I don't like him very much and I want to kill him, but I better not because the people like him too much. That's John's saving grace, but still what we're seeing here is a sense of insecurity. I mean, Herod Antipas here, this tetrarch, he was swayed by public opinion. He wouldn't do what's right. This verse shows the deep animosity here that Herod carried toward John the Baptist. You see here in verse 5, he wanted to put him to death. He hated John the Baptist. He loathed the truth that revealed his sin, that shone a bright light upon his debauchery. Any of us react that way when God begins to show us our sin, when the truth of the gospel comes to our ears and the Lord through his Holy Spirit convicts us of the truth of our sin? How do we react? Same way. I want to kill this thing. It's making me uncomfortable. Can we relate? But this, this Herod Antipas, this Herod Tetrarch, he feared the opinions of the people who loved John the Baptist more than they loved Herod. He had to walk on eggshells here. Verses 6 through 8, here we continue, and we read even more about the depth of the sin here. Verse 6 through 8, now we get the scene here of John's death. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company, and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Verse 8, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. All right, here we go. Number one, it's Herod's birthday. Big celebration. Not a very godly celebration, apparently. Uh, young girl dancing, bringing pleasure to the men in the room, particularly the drunk king. Um, and, you know, you get a lot of wine in you. Your mind goes different ways, and then, then on top of the wine in your mind, now you've got this young girl doing things that makes you, know, makes you go crazy. And you're going to say things and think things that you wouldn't think normally. I mean, this guy's already insecure anyway. But now we're looking at public shame, public embarrassment. This leads evil to do what it would not do otherwise. 
oh, wait a minute. Now I've got a different level of if, if I, if I do, if I tell this girl no, because it's the right thing to say, no, I'm not going to bring the head of John the Baptist to you. Now I look like a weak king. But now he's a weak king anyway, because he does what she says, because now he's making a decision based on public opinion, not on what is right. That's another level of evil. Right? He's afraid of his reputation. This allure of a young girl that caused this weak minded man to follow through on his basis desires. He, he, he now, this now is the opportunity to take revenge on his enemy. But see, he made a promise in front of everybody. He took an oath. It wasn't just a casual, all right, sweetheart, I'll do whatever you want. Just talk to me later. No, it was in public in front of everyone. I will give you whatever you want. And this girl was smart. She goes to her mother and says, okay, mom, give me some counsel. What should I ask for? And what does she ask for? The head of John the Baptist. What does this show us here? I mean, this, this young girl, as she's dancing, it shows how the beauty of God is distorted by evil for evil ends. Beauty is a gift of God. All things good, true, and beautiful come from God himself as he designed it to be. Yet now we have a distortion here of beauty, and beauty is now used as a manipulation of the mind of Herod. This young girl was the daughter of Herod's invalid wife. Remember, Herodias was Philip's wife. So this young girl is Herod's niece and his stepdaughter. See where we're going? Now, see, I'm from the, the, the hills of southwest Virginia, northeast Tennessee. I'm from the hills of Appalachia. You know, we got nothing compared to what's going on here. Okay. I didn't marry any of my cousins either. Okay. I'm just letting you know. And I know what shoes are. Just saying. See what we got going on here? It's, it's this young girl. She goes to her mother. I mean, the depth of dysfunction here in this family goes deep. But the allure of her dancing causes the weak-minded man to make a foolish promise. He's a fool. And this foolish promise puts him into a dilemma. One On the one hand, he promised not to kill John the Baptist as a way to appease the crowds, remember? I'm not going to kill John the Baptist because the crowds love him. And he promised not to do it. But then he also wanted to please this young girl and all of the guests at his birthday party. So now he's put himself into a dilemma. See where evil takes us? <laughs> Keeps getting deeper and deeper. So we see the evil ways of this weak-minded man. It kept going further and further into the abyss. And this is what evil does. It begins with little things and builds and builds until the evil mind is so trapped that it can't get out. You see what's happening here? Verses 9 through 11 and the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He was sorry that he made this promise. He was sorry that he got himself into this mess, but he had to keep going. Verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. I mean, what we're seeing here in verses 9, 10, and 11 is a common practice of the ancient world, especially among the royalty. It would not be uncommon for them to have a, a feast and a celebration where part of the entertainment would be to bring in prisoners and have them executed right there in front of the table. 
It was not uncommon for people in authority uh, in this kind of a role to have the heads of their enemies brought to them as evidence that their orders had been carried out. Very common here. So even there we're seeing it deeper that, that this Herod, he was not a godly man. He was more of a pagan than anything. But why did Herodias, the wife, manipulate this situation? Here we see that not only was Herod Antipas at fault here, so was his wife. I think there's guilt that's rising up in both of them. I think we could argue that John's death here, his martyrdom, brings the great guilt upon Herod and Antipas. Remember, it says here that Herod, the king, was sorry. He was sorry. Now he's got some guilt. But is he guilt? Is he feeling sorry for his sin or is he sorry for his circumstance? I think it's the latter. But still there's guilt here going on. So Herodias sought to cover up her sin. Remember Herodias, the brother's wife, she's just as in deep in sin and evil here as Herod the, the, the man. She left her husband for this other guy. Now she's plotting because John is talking about her just as much as he's talking about him. Her reputation has now been tarnished by the truth. She's now plotting. This is now further evidence in Scripture, as lovely and as gracious as the gift of women are that God has made. Ladies, you got some deep sinful thinking going on here, don't you? Y'all can get manipulative. I only see one lady back there grinning, yes. The rest of them are going, don't, don't you go there. All right, men in this room are going, what did he just say? I'm just pointing out what Scripture shows. I mean, there's some vile women in the Bible. They got some manipulative evil in them, and they are so sweet when they do it. Evil goes deep. And so Herodias, this, this wife, this illegitimate wife, of Herod Antipas, she seeks to cover up her sin too by silencing her critic. And she sees an opportunity here. And so she sought John's death out of guilt, but also out of revenge. She saw the opportunity and said, let's take care of this right now. My husband's too drunk and he's too weak. I'm going to solve the problem. Let's get his head. So the result of Herod's rejection of Jesus here is what is at play. What we see here is that at the time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus here in Matthew 14, 1, that's what all started this. Herod heard the stories of Jesus. And the rest of this narrative here about John the Baptist shows how he rejects that. The result of Herod's rejection of Jesus is that Herod the Tetrarch is now condemned to eternal death and hell and damnation. Remember that this whole encounter began with the appeal that Herod had for this Jesus. This particular Herod, the Tetrarch, he had heard the stories of Jesus. He was intrigued. He was enthralled by the stories of great power and of great popularity that followed our Lord. Yet Herod's, he was, he was fascinated. This, you could actually say this is a morbid fascination. You know, the idea of more, that which is morbid is that which is death and dark and destructive. He has this morbid fascination with John. He wants John dead. And with the miraculous and supernatural, he was fascinated with all this stuff. And he had nothing to do with the genuine seeking after the truth. And he had nothing certainly to do with the seeking of salvation here. 
It was the religious curiosity of Herod, this religious curiosity of unbelief. It wasn't a religious curiosity of, you know, I think I might like Jesus. I think I might want to hear more about Jesus. No, his curiosity was a distorted curiosity. It was a religious curiosity, but it was a, a curiosity of unbelief. That's a big difference. It's one thing to be curious about Jesus. It's one thing to be uh, interested in the truth. Yet in the end, it's just another act of unbelief. Herod had no no belief and had no faith at all in the stories he was hearing. He was just enthralled with the power that he was listening to. So it was this religious curiosity here that shows its evil origins. And, and, and Herod's evil curiosity, his unbelief, actually causes God's grace and God's truth and God's love to be walled off from his heart. We see here in this text that Herod has no hope of salvation because he did, he had no desire for it. Herodias, his illegitimate wife, has no hope of salvation because she had no desire for it. Their hearts were so hardened and distorted and polluted by evil, there it was no hope for them at all because their actions showed that they had no desire to follow Jesus whatsoever. They were just curious about the power and really, think about this. If you've ever been in a situation where you have all power, I don't know many of us in this room who do, but there is something, about, I mean, there's something addictive to that. I'm in charge. And that's what controlled these distorted minds here. After Herod had John the Baptist beheaded, he inquired about Jesus often. We see this in Luke chapter 9. So if you'll turn over with me to Luke chapter 9, see Matthew 14 just kind of shows us the beginning of this relationship between Herod and Jesus. But but John chapter 9 tells us a little bit further uh, of what happens. It wasn't that Herod the Tetrarch here was just curious. He was more than cures. He was seeking after. He wanted to know more about Jesus, but it was the wrong fascination. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 7. I'm sorry. Luke. Oh, I've got the wrong note. Thank you. So you guys just correct me and love me. Thank you. Luke, Luke chapter 9. Yeah, see, on one side I have Luke 9, but then on another I have John 9. So that's my fault. See, guys, we're not perfect here at Sovereign Grace. And y'all love me enough to tell me I'm not perfect. Luke chapter 9. Thank you. Luke chapter 9. Beginning of verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Verse 9. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about who I hear such things? And he sought to see him. You see that there's a deeper, deeper level of curiosity here revealed in Luke's account. But Jesus here, here's what we do know in the Gospels. Even though this Herod Tetrarch, he was, he was curious and he inquired about Jesus because there was a lot going on there that he thought that Elijah had come back. He thought John the Baptist had come back. And now he's, he wants to meet this Jesus to learn more. Jesus made no effort at all to see Herod and would not allow him to see him in return until it was his father's time. Jesus controlled this whole circumstance. You know, when, when, when Herod Antipas, the quote king, calls for you to come and see him and you tell him no, that's a dangerous, 
thing. But Jesus did. Jesus refused to go and see this Herod until it was his father's time. So we get a hint here in the Gospels that there was this tense, tense relationship between Herod and Jesus, even though they never met until it was the appropriate time. He made no effort to see him. Jesus went about his ministry. He did what he was supposed to do. He didn't have time to fool with this. He didn't have time to fool with the fool. He left this king in his unresolved fear. He left this king in his unrelenting sin. And he left this king in his self-imposed paranoia, his own self-imposed damnation. Jesus left him to it. Luke's account of Jesus' crucifixion now, Luke chapter 23, and his crucifixion trial tells us that it was this same Herod the Tetrarch who Pilate sent Jesus to see. Luke chapter 23, verses 8 through 9, if you want to read that. Actually, beginning verse 6, Luke chapter 23, verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod. And this is what we're talking about, Herod, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, verse 8, for he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. You see how the story in Matthew 14 connects here to the very end? Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Notice this. Herod and Pilate now become bosom buddies through this whole thing. You see how evil just manifests more evil? And evil, like-minded, like-minded evil minds are drawn together as they both reject Christ. So Herod the Tetrarch here, as Jesus stands before him, if we know Jesus as he stands before him and is judged by him and is mocked and, and this purple robe is put on him, Jesus does not answer one question. Won't even give him the dignity of answering him. So Herod the Tetrarch here is a weak-minded, insecure fool. He rejected Jesus and Jesus rejected him. And the fascination with Jesus was for entertainment. Yet this Herod, I think, for fear of a woman and for fear of public opinion, what does he do? For fear of his reputation, he, la- he, had a fe- he had a lack of fear of God. And he had a lack of fear for the truth. And he had a lack of fear for salvation through Christ alone. And he damned his soul for eternity. Something I want us to remember here as we see in this is that evil is ultimately insecure. And it's ultimately the downfall of the weak-minded. Evil is ultimately insecure. Let's not forget that. I mean, we face a fallen world today. We're going to close with this. We face a world today that is suffering at the hands of a dictator. We live in a fallen world that is full of sin. We have a world that is full of tyrants. And today, all we, we all watch at this madman in Moscow and he's stirring up tensions that honestly could lead to a much greater devastation and destruction. We don't know what's going to happen next. 
And I'm not here to stir up fear. I'm just pointing out the reality that we're facing. But here's what we see in Scripture. Evil minds are insecure. And they do not win. And they actually cause more trouble for themselves in the long run. An evil, insecure, weak-minded man here in position of authority is the tool of evil. And in this passage, we see that one man stood up to him publicly, and that was John the Baptist, who was the greatest of all prophets because he was given the task of proclaiming and announcing the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Evil's going to stand up against that at all costs. Yet this boldness resulted in his death. John's boldness resulted in his death at the hands of the evil that he stood up against. Was John the Baptist naive? I don't think so. He stood firm knowing the outcome. How many of us here today would stand firm like John the Baptist does? Speaking truth to power when it's appropriate and necessary. How many of us in this church today would stand firm like this? How many people do you know, they talk a big talk, they, 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 they talk a big game, but when it comes down to actually standing up and speaking truth to power, they don't. Now, notice here as I'm saying, this is John the Baptist speaking truth, God's truth, not John's truth. This is not John the Baptist standing up for any kind of, I'm going to make myself a big man here, and and I just think he's wrong. No, John the Baptist is speaking the truth of Scripture here. God's words to evil. Not John's words. God's words. John the Baptist did not stand up for his rights. He stood for the right of God and his ways. John was humble as he was bold. This is not about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not elevating himself. He was elevating his Savior, Jesus Christ. He was elevating his Lord, his God, who said, this is true. This is right. This is how you live. That's what John the Baptist was lifting up. Now, he did it in a way that got him in a lot of trouble, but it was he was probably going to be in trouble anyway, no matter what he said. <laughs> But you see, he's not standing up for his own personal feelings. He's standing up for the truth that God says is true. He stood for God. And a madman and an evil woman beheaded him. What I want us to close and understand here is that the gospel is valuable. It's worthy of remembering and it's worthy of our lives. Even if our lives must end, the gospel is valuable. I think we can learn from this passage that evil is real and that honest faith in Christ will inevitably lead to death for all of us. Are you brave enough? Do you have faith enough? Without faith, we're going to fall. And that's the point here. It's faith. It's not our own Gumption. It's not our own strength that we're talking about here. John, this passage is not talking about John's standing up to evil. It's John speaking the truth, God's truth, as God called him to do. And he knew the end. 
But let's remember what Jesus told Peter back in Matthew chapter 16. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How does Jesus build his church? He builds his church in us. We are his church. It is the kingdom of heaven in us that stands. And so when evil comes against us, Jesus says, our church will not fall. The truth of the kingdom will prevail against all of evil that comes. If the gates of hell come against us, they will not prevail because the kingdom is true. No form or level of evil is going to triumph over the kingdom of heaven, period. Amen? That's what we see here. So here's my, my call for us all is to hold precious that holy and good gift that resides in you. If you are redeemed in Christ, there is a holy and precious gift of the kingdom in you. That's what we stand firm for. You see that? The kingdom within you will triumph always. Not that we will triumph. It's the kingdom of God in us. The Holy Spirit in us will triumph always. Here's what Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 says. Here's what Jesus tells his disciples as he sends them out to minister. He, and he, remember back in Matthew 10, he tells them, you will face persecution on this mission I'm giving you. And here's what Jesus tells them in Matthew 10 28. And he says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. John the Baptist did not fear Herod Antipas, this tetrarch, because He could only kill the body. Herod had no power over the soul. None. So who did John the Baptist fear? His Lord, his God, his maker. So likewise, Jesus faced the same when he stood before this weak-minded Herod at the end in his trial. That's why Jesus did not speak. (laughs) You have no power over me. I made you. Not only that, I can destroy your soul. I don't know if Jesus mocked him with a funny face or he just kind of stood there stoic. I don't know. But the point is, Jesus had nothing to say to this fool because he was a fool. I mean, scriptures are pretty clear, don't you think? I mean, he was a pretty foolish guy. And Jesus didn't want to really give him the time of day. So how do we as God's people, what do we take away from this? Let's just take away number one here, verses 1 through 12 of Matthew 14, that evil exists. Okay, let's not keep our head in the sand here, folks. We, we, we are a very comfortable country. Okay. Um, we're a very comfortable country. We're a very comfortable church. Y'all comfortable today? You got some pretty nice padded chairs. You got some nice air conditioning going on. It's a beautiful day outside. I mean, uh, the highway is still, you can still navigate the highway. You don't have bombed out tanks and things out on the highway. I mean, it's, it's a very comfortable existence. And I'm not here to stir us up into fear and anger and anxiety. It's, but, but let's just ask ourselves, I mean, if, if we can't stand for the truth of the gospel at our workplace and at our schools and, and out in the community when we're living in peace and serenity, we'll never stand up for the truth of the gospel when we have to. John the Baptist here lost his life because he, he believed he was called by God. He was the prophet of God. But he also understood the truth. And, and Jesus' 
Remember, Jesus encouraged him back in Matthew 11. I am who you say other people. I am who I, who you've been telling them I am. Take comfort, John. I'm here. Is that enough? I hope that, I mean, that, that's all that we need. That's all we need to remember is that Jesus is enough. He is the one he says he is. He has done everything he says he's done. That's faith. That's all we need to stand on. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And God, I, I pray that you would cause us to remember the cost for our salvation, the, the sin that we are, we owe you a great debt for our sin against you and your son, Jesus Christ, redeemed us from that. He, he offers us salvation. His blood atones for our sin and his blood eases your wrath against our sin. Lord, that this evil in this world is, is trying to replace you and they will come against us if we are your people. If, if we are filled with your son's spirit, they come against that. And so, God, I pray that you would cause us to not be fearful when that occurs. I pray, God, you would cause us to stand firm for the truth. I pray that you would cause us to remember that, that millions of Christians before us have stood at the face of death, at the hand of evil. And if we fall to that, we are joining a great company. But you call us to stand firm for the truth of salvation, the truth through your Son, Jesus Christ. Cause us, Lord, to embrace that. Give us the faith and the strength necessary to see that you have loved us and your Son lives in us and that we we just exude that grace to others. Cause us to be that firm and that bold. Lord, as we transition now to a time of communion, as we worship at the Lord's table, cause these ideas, these, these, these truths to fill our memories, to remember our Savior Jesus Christ and all that He has done. He did it at the face in the hand of evil. They killed Him so that He could live in us. He rose from the grave so that we would no longer be trapped, enslaved in that And we gave you praise and honor and glory for that. Cause us to remember. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.